You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 106. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for listening this Thanksgiving week. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace.com. At the end of the episode, we are going to be speaking with Lively Show listener Melissa Joy about how she created a Squarespace website for her wedding's RSVPs to save herself time, money, and hassle. Now let's get on to the show. I hope you guys are having a wonderful Thanksgiving week so far. We're airing this episode on Wednesday instead of the typical Thursday so that for anyone who is traveling home by plane, train, or automobile to see family and friends, may have this episode to listen to while you're traveling. Today, we're gonna be talking with Lee Kramer of leekramer.com and yourenneagramcoach.com about the Enneagram. This is a personality typing system that has nine different types. I had seen it here and there in different blog posts that people had mentioned it and referenced their number. And I was thinking at first that this would be a fun, lighthearted episode about personality types that we can use to share with our family and friends when we go home. But after interviewing Lee and having this conversation, and ultimately actually learning about the Enneagram itself, I've realized that this is not your typical personality typing system like the Myers-Briggs or the StrengthsFinders assessments. This one is a little more deep and introspective in that it really looks at why you do the things you do What's motivating you when you're coming from a not so great place? And how can you elevate your motivations to come from a more wholehearted, healthier place in your world, in your relationships, and basically how you can grow as a person? Actually, now that I've done the interview, going to be something that can be very powerful in particular for anyone who has more challenging relationship dynamics to deal with during the holidays and the Thanksgiving and the holidays to come in December as well. If you know your type, you're able to learn how you can grow, but also you can try to understand where those challenging relationships you may have, where those people's types may be and where they may be coming from as well. Not so that you would change them, but so that you could have more compassion and understanding about why they do the things they do. Let's go to the show. Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you on our holiday special for Thanksgiving. But before we get to that, let's first start with your background. Tell us how you got to where you are. Sure. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, so I'm a very proud Midwestern girl. I was a social worker for several years. I focused on the medical field, working in hospice, focused on child and teen bereavement in addition to being a hospice social worker. And when I was in my late 20s, I started feeling like my life was missing something. It was a good life, but I could see it staying the same way for the next 30 to 40 years. And that really scared me. So I felt like I needed to take a leap of faith, mix things up. And after a lot of prayer and consideration, ended up moving to Nashville. As I was preparing to move, I had decided that I would head out there when my lease ended in May of 2010. Everything fell into place as it got closer to moving, finding a place to live. I got a job offer four days before I moved. Really? So you were moving without the job at the time? Yes. (laughs) 
It was a pediatric social work job. It was this kind of long process, but it fell into place and it was my dream job. I still can't believe how everything worked out. I realized that it was not my dream job and I started to think about what else might be next for me and decided to leave that job and actually worked as a nanny for a while to figure out if I wanted to stay in social work or not. At the same time, I had learned about the Enneagram. A friend had told me about it maybe a few months after I moved to Nashville. He learned about it from his spiritual director, and he thought that I might like it either for myself or to use with social work clients. He was right. (laughs) So as I started learning about the Enneagram, figuring out my type, it was just a really helpful tool. But that's kind of all that it was. No one really knew much about it. So I would bring it up to friends and people wouldn't know what I was talking about. And it was just something nice that I knew about myself. But a few years ago, I was feeling kind of stuck, just not sure what to do in a lot of areas in my life. And so I decided to see a counselor. She used the Enneagram in our sessions. And that really woke something up in me. I just could not stop talking about the Enneagram and I went to a course on it and just kept learning more and more about how it worked and seeing how it applied to my relationships and seeing how it worked in my own life. Just this really powerful tool for growth and a way to see if I was living out of health or fear or insecurity. So it's been a really great way to keep myself grounded. As I was pestering my friends about the Enneagram, they kept asking me, well, when are you going to start charging people for this? You love it. You clearly know a lot about it. Why don't you see what you would have to offer as a coach? I was intrigued by the idea, but also skeptical because I didn't know anyone that was just doing straight Enneagram coaching. There are a lot of life coaches that use it, spiritual directors, counselors, and I didn't really want to go any of those avenues. But when I thought about what my strengths are and my social work background, it made a lot of sense for me to do it. So I decided to launch my coaching business last year. So it's been a really nice side job, something that I really love to talk about. And in the midst of all of that, I have since moved again. So (laughs) I'm now in San Francisco working for a church as an administrative assistant. That is another crazy story, but I don't know if you want me to get into it or not. (laughs) That's awesome. One of the things that caught my attention as you were describing this is that you said it was a powerful tool for growth, which was interesting because I tend, and maybe this is a limiting use of these types of tools like Myers-Briggs and StrengthsFinder and Enneagrams, I tend to think of them mostly about self-awareness and understanding not specifically actually what to do based on it to grow. So I'm excited to go into that more because I just keep thinking it's how you categorize and understand yourself, not specifically how you might grow. I think a lot of other personality typing systems talk about how we are. It's a nice description of what you might be like. And the Enneagram is more about why we are, looking at our behaviors. And then the nice part of looking at your motivations is that it provides this really great pathway for growth according to your type. So let's look at the Enneagram test specifically. What is it and how is it created? Let's start from the beginning. It's an unusual history in that nobody really knows how it began. How people have figured out their type over the course of time has changed a lot. So it was first an oral history that the Desert Fathers and Mothers used and the Sufis. Wait, wait, wait. I am shocked. I went online and I spent $12 and I took a test and it told me what I was. But you're saying that originated with the Sufis and people were just talking. I don't even understand. Yes. (laughs) The origins are a little murky, but we do know that that it has been used in some form for that long. It was kind of based around, so there's like the seven deadly sins. 
what the seven deadly sins are based on are Evagrius Ponticus's eight deadly thoughts. And then he had a central thought called love of self. The eight deadly thoughts plus the love of self, that creates our nine types that the Enneagram is based on. Really? That was how it was originally. So it was talking about the root struggles, which are anger, pride, deceit, envy, greed, fear, gluttony, lust, and laziness. And I'm not sure what the original Enneagram was like. What we know it as now is based on Oscar Ichazo, who did a lot of teaching in the late 60s and 70s. And that's where it kind of came over into the U.S. and other Western countries. So how we know it now is based off of Ichazo's work. There's a lot of different theories related to the Enneagram. So most theories will talk about a root struggle, not a sin, but it's more of a semantic thing. So we all, whether you want to call it a sin or a struggle, we all can deal with anger, pride, laziness. We all have those struggles. It's just that the Enneagram, your type focus on one specific struggle that trips you up the most. So let's walk through the numbers one through nine of the Enneagram. What does each number represent? Each number is a specific type. They are grouped by centers. So you have types two, three, and four in the heart center. And those types are all centered around image or identity. Then you have types five, six, and seven in the head center. And that is centered around fear. And then you have the gut center as the last one. So that's eight, nine, and one. And that is more around how they relate to their own instinctual energy. What does that mean? If you're high in the two, three, and four, which you said was the heart center, what does that mean your strengths are? And what does that mean you're motivated by? It, it depends on each type. So the middle type of each center is the most disconnected. A type three, which is in the heart center, they're most disconnected from their emotions. The heart center is really about, so it's about image and identity, but it's those types tend to be really strongly identified with their emotions in some way. And then the gut center, type nine, is the most disconnected from their instinctual energy. Their greatest struggle is laziness. So they tend to not be necessarily physically lazy, but they don't want to be ruffled by anything in life. And so they just take a step back from whatever is going on. They don't want to engage. Um, Whereas someone who is um, more maybe overly connected to their instinctual energy, which is an eight, would maybe be more likely to just charge through and power on good or bad. Okay, so now we're looking at my results. I have a high number in the two, which I think would be the heart part. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I have highs in seven and eight. Yes. Which are, I guess, one is mind and one is instinct. You have interesting results because they're in each of the centers. So So the two is in the heart center, the seven is in the thinking center, and the eight is in the gut center. Does that mean I'm all over the place? No. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the interesting part about working through someone's results is seeing maybe why they got the results that they got. Once you've, you are able to hone in on what the core type is, then a lot of other things start to make sense. The beauty of the Enneagram is even though you have a core type, you're still connected to the other types. I don't know if you want me to get into some of the connections now or if you want to focus more on. Yeah, I would like to understand it because I will say I didn't identify the way that I've identified with Myers-Briggs and my ENFJ. I was like, yes, that's definitely me. When I watched the videos that I saw after looking at these three highest categories, the two, seven, and eight, especially the eight, I was like, that's my dad all day long. 
And I have aspects of seven for sure. But then it was pretty limiting too. I didn't feel like any one of them was like, oh, they totally get me. Is that typical? Yes, it can be. And it could be that what the test showed as your top three results is not actually your top three results, which could be for any any reason. So it might be that there is a different one in there. Or it could be that there's some internal resistance to to seeing your type because the Enneagram does require that we confront our junk. <laughs> confront our junk. I like that. Yes. <laughs> so, all right. So if someone, we're just going to use mine as the example right now, and then maybe we can contrast with your numbers so we can hear two different personalities here. Based on my results, what do you think my type is? Well, I can't say for sure. I don't have any guesses about you quite yet. But what I think is interesting, and I always recommend that people you know, read through the type profiles and see what resonates since nothing has really resonated with you quite yet. Nothing perfectly. I guess all of them are aspects, but nothing was like they nailed me. One of the theories that's out there that looks at how we, whether we move against people, towards them, or away from them, and maybe that would be helpful in, in narrowing it down. So two fives and eights are power seekers. Now five isn't one of your options, but it's it's grouped in there. Twos, fives, and eights tend to move against others seeking control, but when they're healthy, they empower people. So I could see that being a a feature of who you are because just the very nature of the work that you do is very empowering. And then sevens are in the inspiration seeker category. So they move away from others to pursue their aspirations, but when they're healthy, they inspire others. So could also see that being in there as well. But where we can get a little different is sevens want to remain in constant motion. That I can relate to. Okay. <laughs> that totally sounds like me. I'm constantly going from one thing to the next, whether it's a move or buying a house in three weeks or closing a business because my gut told me to do something else. I'm definitely willing to make changes whenever my intuition leads me to. So is it only when your intuition is telling you to or is it is there like a a deeper compulsion to have a lot of variety, a lot of choices, wanting to be spontaneous, seeking experiences. I think I enjoy all of those things, but I try to make the moves when my intuition's the one leading the charge. Is that something that's different? Did you tend to be more spontaneous and free spirit in in the past? Or is that something that you've... Spontaneous, I think, has only grown stronger as I've grown. Growing up, when you're in a family with school and college, everything's kind of like plodding along, (laughs) right? You're kind of funneled into things. It wasn't probably until I was living on my own and working for myself right out of school that I had the flexibility and freedom to have spontaneity in a greater way, I suppose. I would say in the last, since I was 20, it was like the last 10 years, I would say it has only grown and I enjoy it a lot. I like having a lot of spontaneity and growth because I keep growing and seeing what comes next from it. But what I've learned over that same 10 years is I can make an ego decision of what I think I want or what sounds cool. But if it's not coming from my intuition in a place of peace, it's not going to lead me to what I'm really seeking. So I've definitely tempered that impulse with direction from within. Well, one of the key motivations for a seven is that they don't want to miss out on worthwhile experiences and they want to keep themselves um, excited and occupied. So they're always looking for something that's going to fill them up, whatever will fill up their emptiness. That sounds pretty true. That The number eight, I didn't totally. And the number two, 
I didn't totally. So I guess if I had to like put myself into one of the categories, you're right. I think I would probably settle on the seven. What do I do next? So for anyone else, maybe they're a six or a five or a two or a seven as well. What do we do once we know our number? Once you have identified your core type, then the best thing to do is to kind of sit in it and to read other profiles and to familiarize yourself with what that core type is all about so that you can start to see it in your day to day. It's one thing to read, read it on a page and to think about, yeah, that's me. But it's another thing to see those things playing out in your everyday life and in your everyday relationships. And then it's not about judging what you see, but just noticing like, huh, when I feel sad, this is how I respond. And you might be aware of that on some level, but most of us are just kind of used to how we are. And even if we are really focused on growing and improving, there's still parts of our of our personality that we can very easily rationalize or ignore or minimize. Um, and so the Enneagram kind of forces us to look at those patterns with new eyes and open us up to thinking about approaching life in a different way. Looking at what you do when things aren't good or what you do when you're sad, what is the seven's good and what's the seven's weakness? The seven's biggest fear is of being deprived or in pain. So they tend to avoid pain, avoid thinking about it, avoid dealing with it. They focus on what will make them happy and wanting new experiences and just seeing or experiencing all that life has to offer them, which can sound good on paper. And sevens, when you meet them, they tend to be very happy-go-lucky. They have a certain sparkle in their eye. They're super fun. Like they're always going on some crazy adventure and they usually want you to come along for the ride, which is really great. But then there can also be this other side to sevens where they can't necessarily go as deep interpersonally because that would make them think about things that they don't want to think about. They can be really scattered and undisciplined. They tend to be more like ADD where they will be really enthusiastic about one idea but only as long as it holds their attention. And then they're thinking about the next idea. They can be really impatient and impulsive. Yeah, the root struggle is is gluttony. And not necessarily like with a food kind of gluttony, but just filling up their emptiness with exciting experiences. And just this idea of excessiveness, that everything has to be like the biggest and the best. But that really is counterintuitive because those exciting experiences when they're used to avoid dealing with the reality of life's ups and downs means that they can't fully connect to themselves or to the people around them. The piece that doesn't feel right for me is I think that from a young age, I've always been someone who has deeply sought out deep connections with others and actually just mostly struggled to actually find people that are willing to connect in that deep level that I would like. So I don't know that I see myself as avoiding that or scattered in any way but more seeking that, maybe not finding it successfully <laughs> and looking for that in other places and so maybe the moving around to change to try to find that. But the piece of like actually avoiding it doesn't feel right at all. How does anyone else that who also might feel like a piece of it really fundamentally doesn't align? What do you do with that? Do you say you're you're wrong and you're lying to yourself or because <laughs> I really don't no. think I am. I've done a lot of work with a lot of therapists. Uh, I've definitely had challenges, but it's not because I didn't want it. I often ask people to think about if if there's if we're looking at different types and nothing is quite resonating, then I ask them to think about how they were in their teen years or in their early 20s and to think about what did they do then? How did they react to people then? What were their typical struggles? 
And then you can usually start to really narrow down, is this an area that I've grown in and I used to have more of a problem with that back then? Or, or is that really just not my type and we need to look at a different type? So when you're talking about really wanting to be connected to people, then that makes me think that type two could be a better fit for you because twos have the need to be needed and they're really relationally oriented. Longing for a deep connection has definitely been a theme of my whole life. And the enthusiast, though, the last 10 years, I've had, like I said, the spontaneity growth and all of this fun and it's only accelerated. That's probably new growth for me. Then the core of the past was always trying to seek connections with others. Like I didn't have great relationships in high school and sought out really unhealthy relationships and also wanted deeper relationships with my family members, but was not able to to get that type of connection that I deeply wanted. So what number are you? I'm a four. Okay. We have not even touched on four. So let's look at that. What are the goods and the, the not so goods of fours? Fours tend to be very moody which I can definitely be. The biggest struggle is envy and comparison. And there is literally no limit to what I can compare myself about. What's the weirdest thing you've compared yourself about? I'm in a Facebook group with some friends and I pay attention when I'm feeling insecure about whatever, not necessarily my my standing in the group, but when I'm just feeling insecure about something in my life, I will pay attention to who likes whatever I have said in the group. I'll pay attention to how many comments I get. I pay attention to how, which people are more likely to comment on other people's things compared to me. And it drives myself crazy that I do that. But when I'm feeling stressed, then I start to think that, you know, maybe I don't have any significance in the group or that they don't really see me. And then that makes me focus on on those things more than when I'm just kind of staying in my lane and focusing on what I'm doing in my own life and and seeing the value that I offer just because of who I am, not because I'm, you know, super special, even though that is what the four wants to believe. We have this deep need to be special. (laughs) This is like uncomfortable to look at. I think I get what you're saying when it comes from the root of this. This is very different than the Myers-Briggs and the, not that it can't be critical too, but it doesn't seem to focus on it as much. When I first realized that I was a four, I just cringed because, oh my gosh, who wants to see themselves as this moody, introspective, like self-absorbed person? I don't want to see myself like that. And I don't want to see myself as needy or <laughs> clingy or whatever. It's hard. It's really hard to admit that. I thought this was going to be a light thing, Lee. I thought we were going to have some fun before Thanksgiving, eat some pie. <laughs> Instead, we're all looking at our, our deepest, darkest places. I think that's why the Enneagram is maybe not more popular. I, it's growing in popularity because I think people do realize that they need to admit to the areas that they really struggle, like what is at the root of most of their problems But it's not fun at first to do that. But the more that I've learned about type four, the more I've been able to see when I'm healthy and when I'm self-aware and when I'm sensitive and where my greatest creativity comes from and how when I am emotionally balanced, which is my greatest gift, how much that impacts and improves the people around me. It's huge. And that helps me be more grounded in my day to day. Okay, so yeah, let's look at this from the terms of growth. So now if we've looked at our need or the hole that we're trying to fill with whatever the type is trying to seek, what do we do to grow from there? So once you've identified your core type and you've started to see it in your day-to-day, there's a couple of books that I I would recommend. Um, And one of them is The Wisdom of the Enneagram. And it lays out um, the nine levels of growth. 
um, for each type. So from the healthiest level all the way down to the least healthy. And you can start to see yourself when you're in your healthy levels, when you're in the average levels. Um, and hopefully, if you're self-aware enough to want to know your Enneagram type, hopefully you're not in the unhealthiest levels because then you start to lose grip with reality at, at, that, at that point. And it's harder to come back to the average or healthy levels. Um, not impossible, but it's just harder to see that, that you're that connected to your ego and you are incapable of seeing life in a different way. If you're in that level, how do you get out of it? Usually we have just enough self-awareness or just enough understanding of ourselves that we can see that we're going down a bad path. And if you can recognize that, then you can start to turn it around and start to make healthier choices. And it's not necessarily behavioral. It's a lot of it is internal. It's the, it's the messages that we say, give to ourselves. So for a four, it's really easy for me to become fatalistic and think that life is never going to get any better this is horrible. People hate me and to kind of go down that path. And once I'm once I'm there, then that means that I'm at the unhealthiest levels, which I haven't been there, you know, since probably my early 20s. Being aware of of where some of my negative thought patterns can go helps me kind of stay more connected and to say, yeah, I'm feeling really sad and upset in this moment. But I know that life is not as bad as I think it is right now. And I start to think that there's different healing attitudes that you can say to yourself. And so I'll say maybe I'm not the only one who's ever felt this way before. Ooh, healing attitudes. Is there healing attitudes for every number? Yes. Can we go through the healing attitudes? Yes. If you have them off the top of your head. <laughs> I don't have off the top of my head, but I have I have the book next to me. Maybe we could go through what the, the strength and the challenge is for each number and then what the healing attitude would be. Because that way, in case someone takes this test and they're like, man, they only talked about their numbers like two and four. I'm a five. What about the fives? Maybe we could share something for the fives. That would be helpful. Man, I thought we were going to be, you know, this is fun. This is interesting and lighthearted. Let's go to Thanksgiving and and chat about our numbers and instead we're like oh my gosh here are my biggest weaknesses <laughs> but I think especially as people are going to see family uh, we all kind of know how our families are yeah I'm like I know my dad is the eight I know yeah that. so we know like what our family's tendencies are and we know like the things that kind of make us feel like oh my gosh I just don't want to deal with that person right now or I just don't have it in me to uh, deal with with their with their junk um, but when we know our type and when we know someone else's type, then we can start to give ourselves and them a little bit more grace. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those unhealthy behaviors are like that much easier to deal with, but it kind of centers us in a different way. So we're not responding out of our own pain or discomfort or insecurity. You're just seeing their pain, discomfort and insecurity <laughs> for what it is, I guess. I think it helps us have a little bit more compassion on them. Like, wow, they must be in a really awful place that this is how this is the only way that they can respond to people. And it doesn't mean that it feels good to be on the receiving end of that. It's just another way of, of reframing it because you can't necessarily get away from your family. They're going to be a part of your life to one degree or another, but you can reframe how you respond to them. And you can also make sure that you're not feeding into that beast. Okay. So do you have our healing mindsets? Yeah. So let's go through number one, what's their strength and what's their weakness? And then what's the healing thought? So one has the need to be perfect and their biggest struggle is anger or resentment. Ones tend to be really disconnected from their anger. And so they often... 
they will have a hard time even seeing that resentment is a part of their life. The great gift that they have is serenity. And the healing attitude is maybe others are right. Maybe someone else has a better idea. Maybe others will learn for themselves. Maybe I've done all that can be done. How about number two? Two has the need to be needed. Their uh, biggest struggle is pride. And then their greatest gift is humility, which is the opposite of pride. Their healing attitudes are, maybe I could let someone else do this. Maybe this person is actually already showing me love in their own way. Maybe I could do something good for myself too. How about number three? Three has the need to succeed and their root struggle is deceit. Not necessarily that they're all big liars, but they are inauthentic instead of being completely honest and real with themselves or with others. Um, The great gift is honesty. And then their healing attitude is maybe I don't have to be the best. Maybe people will accept me just the way I am. Maybe others' opinions of me aren't so important. I actually can think of someone I know that I think is that one. Oh, really? That's crazy when you just say those things. I'm like, oh, I bet other people listening right now go, oh, that's my aunt so-and-so. <laughs> that's my friend so-and-so. How about number four? Uh, four has the need to be special. The root struggle is envy in comparison. And the great gift is emotional balance. And the healing attitudes are maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe others do understand me and are supporting me. Maybe I'm not the only one who feels this way. So what we, when we're in that low state, we think those thoughts to help us reframe and get out of that negative space. Yes. Okay. How about number five? Five is, has the need to perceive. Um, their root struggle is greed. In terms of usually hoarding ideas or, or possessions, it's a defense mechanism. And then their great gift is objectivity or non-attachment. And their healing attitudes are, maybe I can trust people and let them know what I need. Maybe I can live happily in the world. Maybe my future will be okay. And how about number six? Six has the need for security. Uh, Their uh, root struggle is fear or worry. And then their greatest gift is courage. The healing attitudes are, maybe this will work out fine. Maybe I don't have to foresee every possible problem. Maybe I can trust myself and my own judgments. And how about number seven? Seven is um, they have the need to avoid pain. The root struggle is gluttony, just in terms of filling up their emptiness with exciting experiences. And then the great gift is joy. Their healing attitudes are maybe what I already have is enough. Maybe there's nowhere else I need to be right now. Maybe I'm not missing out on anything worthwhile. And number eight? Eights have the need to be against their root struggle is lust, um, sorry, like sexual lust, but it's an addiction to intensity or intense experiences. The great gift is innocence. I do not see my dad as innocent, but that it's funny. <laughs> it's, so it's innocence in terms of simplicity itself. There's a largeness of heart that lets them feel really benevolent toward themselves, towards other people. Eights can be really great at relating to children and pets. There's like this softness that comes out in them in those moments that you may not see in their other relationships where they can be a little more combative. That is so true. Oh my gosh. I did. Also, he only watches helicopter movies, as I call them. There has to be a helicopter in the movie or he's not watching it. And it needs to be on as loud as humanly possible. He's good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's blown the speaker covers off the speakers when I was growing up more than once. <laughs> And what's their healing attitude? So the healing attitude for AIDS is maybe this person isn't out to take advantage of me. Maybe I can let down my guard a little more. 
maybe I could let my heart be touched more deeply. Okay, how about number nine? So nine has the need to avoid, um, which is different from the sevens need to avoid pain. Nines just avoid. Struggle is laziness, which is more about not wanting to be deeply engaged with the world or um, putting out energy to be fully present. Um, Their great gift is decisive action. And then the healing attitude is maybe I can make a difference. Maybe I need to get energized and be involved. Maybe I am more powerful than I realize. So when you say those great gifts, is that the gift they already have or the gift that they want to receive? It's the gift that they already have. It's at the core of who we truly are. When we are just ourselves, when we're not living out of our ego, when we're not focusing on our fears or our desires, when we're not trapped by our, our root struggles, then we have that great gift inside of us and we're able to let it out. Once they figure out their number, what would you advise them to do next? I think one of the best things you can do is to memorize your healing attitudes in your day-to-day life. To just notice, for me, when I feel my emotions coming on more strongly and when I start to lose myself in my imagination, which is really easy for force to do, we'll start to intensify our feelings through our imagination. When I notice that I'm doing that, then I can say, but I think I tend to say maybe I'm not the only one who feels this way. And that helps me, number one, realize (laughs) that I'm not that special. Like I'm not the only one who's ever experienced pain or hardship or struggle. Um, But also that there are people in my life that would understand if I would give them the chance. When it comes to the coaching aspect of this, what advice do you have for people to consider whether coaching's appropriate for them or not? I think if you're having a hard time figuring out your type, that coaching can be really helpful because we can go in depth and to really explore whether or not your test results are accurate or not and to see how those things play out. It's not quite therapy. I'm not acting as someone's therapist, but we do tend to get into a lot of really deep, hard-hitting questions. There are a few Enneagram types that just have a harder time figuring out what type they are. So sixes and nines in particular have a hard time figuring it out. And what's the biggest result you've seen from a client? What kind of shifts have they made based on the work and understanding their Enneagram type? I love when there's that aha moment when we figured out their type and they can see, oh my gosh, this is why I've been struggling with this. This is why I've been behaving this way. And it starts to open themselves up to trying to do it a different way. I was talking to someone just a few weeks ago who was a type five. If there's conflict around her, she will just start to problem solve in her head. And she's physically present, but she's not emotionally present to what's going on around her because she's retreating to her safe place, which is that need to perceive and understand the world around her while being disconnected to the people that she is in conflict with. And it was a huge moment of understanding for her to recognize that that's what she does. I mean, she's been doing it for decades, but she hadn't seen it before. And so now she is thinking about how she can approach conflict differently and how she can be more emotionally present when those times come. And I don't know how that's going to go for her because... Like, I wouldn't expect that she would come back to me now and be like, oh, yeah, now I'm completely present when those things happen and everyone is noticing this big change in me. It takes a lot of time and energy and effort to change those habitual patterns that we've created our whole lives. But when you start to identify what you do, then you can open yourself up to doing it a different way. And each time you have that choice, do I do it the old way or do I try it a different way? And that's where we start to see the growth come in. 
I think of it as uh, something Stephen Covey said in The Seven Habits. He talks about creating the space between stimulus and response. Understanding our Enneagram at the end of the day is creating more of a space between the stimulus, something happens to us, and what our response is by giving us the option to recognize what our habit would be <laughs> to do X and that we have another path and the healing attitudes will help us connect to what that other choice might be and try to keep opening that crack and opening that space as much as possible, kind of like opening a door, a crack of a door to start eventually making those changes. But from my own binge eating cycle and understanding the past of what that was like, a lot of times it's just more uncomfortable initially because you're recognizing it where before you're doing it unconsciously. And so it feels really frustrating because you're like, oh my gosh, but it's really not that you're doing it more. You're just aware of it more than you were before. Yes. But I think the other important thing, and it's really easy to focus on all the negative stuff, but I think we can also start to notice when we're living out from health and wholeness and when you can start to see your great gift in action, then I think that can be really encouraging as well. Like, look what I contain in in myself and how can I live out of that health and wholeness more often? What can we do with this information so that our holiday might be more enjoyable? If It depends on the kind of family that they are about to be with, but if they have a family with maybe some unhealthy dynamics or some unhealthy family members, then I think the Enneagram can help them kind of think about why are their family members behaving the way that they are? What are they motivated by? And when we can identify that, I think that helps us to be a little more gracious toward those people. Not fun to be on the receiving end of any kind of negativity, but just helps us reframe it for ourselves that this is not necessarily about you, it's about them. Like they're responding to some kind of pain or insecurity or stress in their lives. And it's unfortunate that they're taking it out on the rest of you, but it doesn't have to do with you specifically. And I think that can help us be a, a little bit more compassionate, but, or it can also help us figure out what boundaries we need to put in place so that we are more protected from it. That's a great point. What about boundaries? How do we do that with this specifically? Depends on what um, type you are and how sensitive you are to what's going on and also the kind of unhealth that is going on. If uh, a type eight is maybe not going to be as as sensitive as like a type four to the same kind of circumstances, you can think about what, what helps you feel safe and secure. And so does that mean that you... And at this point, it might be too late. But does that mean that you stay at a hotel instead of staying at your parents' house? Or does that mean that you limit the amount of time that you're around certain people or that you're not alone in the room with someone if you know that they tend to take things out on you? Or if they are just really passive, not engaged, does that mean that you try to engage them? Or do you say that you're going to let them figure things out on their own? Which might be, you know, for a type two, that might be really hard. But it just depends on what's driving us and what is hurtful about the relationship in in particular. What about if your family is great? How can we use this work in that case? If you are going into a really healthy, fun dynamic, then I think this could be really great um, table conversation. And you could bring it up and say like, well, what type do you think you are? And to start talking about it. And I think when you have a really good, healthy relationship, then you can kind of laugh at each other with love. Like, oh yeah, you totally do that. And like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm so like this person and I'm this type and and to kind of 
acknowledge maybe the areas that you have to work on, but also acknowledge what you contribute to each other and how you make each other's lives, you know, really better. What doubts or resistance are you facing in your life right now? I've only been in San Francisco for about four months. And so it would be really easy for me at this point to become a little bit more settled and passive when I am feeling stressed and I'm not certain about my relationships, which is kind of how it's going to be when you're in a new city and you're building all of those friendships and relationships. It can be easy for me to just take a step back and kind of hide um, and to not want people to really know who I am, not because I'm like this you know, horrible person, but because Forming relationships, at least the kind of deep relationships that I love, requires a certain vulnerability. And it can be really tiring to do that with person after person after person when you don't have a foundation. So I'm focusing on being really present, being really mindful of the energy that I need to recharge in between um, activities or meeting up with people and just trying to be fully engaged um, and creating the life that I want to have here instead of getting lost in the daily shuffle. And what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? I think to be really gentle with yourself. When you are trying to be more self-aware, and especially with using the Enneagram, it can be really easy to just feel down and to be like, oh, I can't believe that this is um, how I am and this is how people perceive me. We also have to remember that we have really great gifts to offer one another. And the truth is, the world needs all nine types. Now, we can want all nine types to be the healthiest levels, which would be really great. The world would be a different place if everyone was <laughs> self-aware and working on themselves. But that's not the reality. But we still need all nine types. And there isn't one type that is better. So you might bemoan being a four, but the world needs fours for sure. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a four. But just, yeah, just to be to be gentle with yourself and just to start thinking about, you know, what is it that you want in your life to look different? And what can you do about that? We can't change everything, but we can be responsible for how we respond and react to what's going on around us. And that can give us a lot of peace of mind and help us to operate differently than we did in the past. And that will ultimately be more life-giving. What wise words to share for anyone that is going to a more difficult holiday season with family and friends. Lee, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and helping us to better understand ourselves in a way that hopefully will help not only us, but our families as well. Thank you for having me. It's been really great. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Lee, thank you for coming on the show. If you'd like to send Lee a message, you can do so over on Twitter at hopefullee, L-E-I-G-H. Or if you want to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter, you can do so at Jess, C as in cranberry sauce, lively. For show notes, hop over to jesslively.com slash Lee Kramer, L-E-I-G-H. K-R-A-M-E-R. Before I share who's coming up on next week's episode, let's talk with Melissa Joy about today's sponsor, Squarespace.com. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. A little bird has told me that you have used the Lively discount code for Squarespace and built a site for yourself. Is that true? Yes, it is. Awesome. And you have used it in an unusual way that no one yet on the show has used it. So tell us why you started using Squarespace. So I actually used Squarespace to do my wedding website. And the best part about it was that I used it to do online RSVP so that people could return their name and all of their information for the wedding. What typically happens, correct me if I'm wrong, is that people do that in paper and envelopes and stamps. 
Yeah, normally, you know, you get an invitation in the mail and it has a return card that people have to remember to fill out and send back. Typically, when you do that, you have the printing costs of the RSVP card and the envelopes and you have to address everything and you have to pay for postage. So with all of the different moving parts of planning a wedding, I just decided that it was easier just to do online RSVP. And I pretty much ended up breaking even, if not saving money doing it that way. So why did you choose Squarespace specifically for this? Because it's super easy. It, I, I'm not exaggerating. It took me less than an hour to put everything together for my whole wedding website. And I know that there's tons of free websites out there for wedding stuff, but usually you have like super long domain and no one remembers it. But we got our own unique domain name, set everything up in less than an hour, uploaded pictures, connected registry information, did parking information, addresses, and the RSVP, and it was done with. I could mark something off my to-do list. Did you see that there was any difference in terms of getting those RSVPs on the computer versus someone sending it snail mail? Everyone RSVP'd, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. It's a higher conversion rate, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think. And then the other thing is, is that there's always going to be people who aren't going to RSVP on time. A lot of it was friends or people that are kind of of the computer generation. And it was so easy just to text people a link to the website and be like, can you please RSVP? And they could just access it from their phone. It's super mobile friendly and they could just add the information right there everything works and it was over with. You didn't have to call people or track them down or they didn't have to go home and find their RSVP card to send it back. Did it look good? Yeah, it looks super good. And also one thing is that when I first set it up, I picked one of the templates and then later on I got some new engagement pictures and I decided to change the template up and it was super easy to do. I probably changed everything in 10 to 15 minutes. It was exactly the way that I wanted it. It was awesome. It was definitely the best decision I've made in planning my wedding was doing online RSVP. I love that. And what would you say for anyone else who's thinking about possibly doing a website for their wedding as well? Uh, to use Jess's discount code saves you money and you get a free domain name. Don't worry. Don't make it any more complicated than necessary. (laughs) The templates look great as is and they look super unique just by adding your own information and pictures to it that you don't really have to worry about anything else. So for anyone else who wants to, whether they're getting married or not, use this code. Feel free to go over to squarespace.com slash lively. You'll get a free 14-day trial by doing so, and if you like it and want to go forward, use the code LIVELY at checkout to get 10% off of your service. Melissa, it is a joy to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. Have a great day. And now for a sneak peek. Next week, we are speaking with Melissa Gruntkowski of melissagruntkowski.com about quitting your business. I am so excited after 100 plus episodes that have many references to quitting a full-time job to go have a full-time business, but Melissa's story is different. She listened to her intuition and closed her full-time business to get a full-time job. This is fantastic. I am so excited to represent this less traditional story in today's online business day and age, and I cannot wait to share why this was extremely intentional and maybe also something that others listening to the show may have been facing in their own lives. I want to celebrate this fact that people are living their values in all directions, not just in a one-directional way. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 